Hey folks, SH1T coming to you live. We cut up the Mueller press conference. We go into some news, some sports, and uh, Crossfire Hurricane at the end with another very special part at the very end. So if you make it that far, hope you enjoy it. Probably one of the longer podcasts that I've done, but hey, editing for you, doing it for you, and me, and for you, but for me, but you and me. Enjoy. Babe, don't make a sound. 2 a.m. low, gotta keep it down. Don't wait around for a signal now. Give me some verb, I ain't talking now. Babe, don't make a sound. 2 a.m. low, gotta keep it down. Don't wait around for a signal now. Give me some verb, I ain't talking now. You wanna ride in the six? You wanna dine in the six? But when I lean for the kiss, you said I'll probably send you some pics And I'm like, hell no, nah, been waiting too long Hell no, nah, I want that cruel love Alright, let's start the party with everybody's favorite special counsel member Bob Mueller came out of nowhere, held a press conference And it was very weird So we're gonna go into those next nine minutes Start us off, Bob Two years ago, the acting attorney general asked me to serve as special counsel, and he created the special counsel's office. The appointment order directed the office to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This included investigating any links or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the Trump campaign. Now, I have not spoken publicly during our investigation. I'm speaking out today because our investigation is complete. The Attorney General has made the report on our investigation largely public. We are formally closing the special counsel's office. And as well, I'm resigning from the Department of Justice to return to private life. I'll make a few remarks about the results of our work. But beyond these few remarks, it is important that the office's written work speak for itself. Let me begin where the appointment order begins, and that is interference in the 2016 presidential election. As alleged by the grand jury in an indictment, Russian intelligence officers who were part of the Russian military launched a concerted attack on our political system. The indictment alleges that they used sophisticated cyber techniques to hack into computers and networks used by the Clinton campaign. They stole private information and then released that information through fake online identities and through the organization WikiLeaks. The releases were designed and timed to interfere with our election and to damage a presidential candidate. And at the same time as the grand jury alleged in a separate indictment, a private Russian entity engaged in a social media operation where Russian citizens posed as Americans in order to influence an an election. These indictments contain allegations, and we are not commenting on the guilt or the innocence of any specific defendant. Every defendant is presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. The indictments of... Okay, innocent until proven guilty. So the next seven minutes of this press conference is pretty weird then. 
Uh, so it gets, gets a little bit more fun. And uh, I like how they use the term largely released when basically everything with the exception of two sentences or three sentences and a couple of uh, grand jury pages that were redacted. So please continue on, Bob. Every defendant is presumed innocent unless and until proven guilty. The indictments allege and the other activities in our report describe efforts to interfere in our political system. They needed to be investigated and understood, and that is among the reasons why the Department of Justice established our office. That is also a reason we investigated efforts to obstruct the investigation. The matters we investigated were of paramount importance. It was critical for us to obtain full and accurate information from every person we questioned. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of their government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. Let me say a word about the report. The report has two parts, addressing the two main issues we were asked to investigate. The first volume of the report details numerous efforts emanating from Russia to influence the election. This volume includes a discussion of the Trump campaign's response to this activity, as well as our conclusion that there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. And in the second volume, the report describes the results and analysis of our obstruction of justice investigation involving the president. The order appointing me special counsel authorized us to investigate actions that could obstruct the investigation. We conducted that investigation and we kept the office of the acting attorney general apprised of the progress of our work. And as set forth in the report, after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. But innocent until proven guilty, right? And this is this is very reminiscent of the Comey stepping out and basically exonerating Hillary Clinton of her wrongdoing because he basically manipulated the the rules of disclosure of classified information to like to include intent for some reason, which is not in the statute of the crime. But even then, and another thing, I don't think that the order said that you could uh, do obstruction. Like, maybe I'm wrong on that one. I, I don't recall, but I don't think that uh, the order had that you can investigate ob obstruction. It was a CI investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. And then they kind of skirted out and did a criminal investigation on obstruction of justice. So why? It'll make sense in a little bit, I guess. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. Why? It explains that under long-standing department policy, a president, president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. So, Mr. Bueller, if you knew this at the very beginning of your investigation, why did it take you two years to eat, like just shrug your shoulders and do nothing? Why did you do any of this if you were never going to charge like it? So if you found it, so if Trump had colluded or Trump had uh, obstructed and you had definitive evidence that Trump obstructed, you're sitting here standing up in front of everybody saying uh, we can't charge him because of the OLC opinion. So we, there's nothing we can do about it. Like you have to impeach him. Is that what you're basically saying? So you did all this work for what? 
just weird. It's very weird. Extremely weird. Conspiracy theory weird. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. The department's written opinion explaining the policy makes several important points that further informed our handling of the obstruction investigation. Those points are summarized in our report, and I will describe two of them for you. First, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president because it is important to preserve evidence while memories are fresh and documents available. Among other things, that evidence could be used if there were co-conspirators who could be charged now. And second, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Two main issues I have with what those what he just stated. One, when they were doing when Starr was doing the Clinton stuff, he outright accused and said, Hey, Clinton was a liar. Clinton tried to influence people saying that they can't, they should lie to the investigators and do whatever, and Starr actually explicitly called that out in his submission to the OLC or whatever the hell it was. Number two, he's basically outright calling for Congress to start impeachment proceedings with for Trump because he's saying, hey, I can't do it or I'm not going to do it because I don't want my legacy tarnished and I'm not a, as much as I'm being pushed to be a political pawn, I don't want to be a political pawn. So Congress, get off your ass and do it. And I don't want to, I'm not doing this anymore. So I'm stepping away because I've had enough doing whatever. So all the fun stuff that started this investigation, Mueller's probably at his breaking point or end, but then he steps out like Comey and has this weird press conference and basically says, precedent was set in two ways with the OLC going one way saying, hey, you can't indict a sitting president. But number two, Starr has done it already with, with uh, Clinton. And then number two, he basically just now says, hey, Congress, that it's in the Constitution that you're supposed to do this, not me. Really weird stuff. And beyond department policy, we were guided by principles of fairness. It would be unfair to potentially, it would be unfair to potentially accuse somebody of a crime when there can be no court resolution of the actual charge. So that was Justice Department policy. Those were the principles under which we operated and from them, we concluded that we would, would not reach a determination one way or the other about whether the president committed a crime. So again, what have you been doing these last two years? You can't, the, the mental gymnastics of, hey, we're just conducting an investigation so we can record documents and have everybody's memory fresh. Doesn't that seem eerily like violating the Fourth Amendment against unlawful searches and seizures and right to incrimination and all this other fun stuff? So you have a criminal investigation, and but you're not going to charge anybody. You have no underlying crime to charge, or even if you had an underlying crime, you weren't going to charge the person. You were just going to bring your findings to Congress and say to impeach. And even then, you don't recommend impeachment or non-impeachment based on the two years of investigations that you've just done. It makes no sense whatsoever.
it makes it's just it makes just as much as sense when Comey trotted out there and changed the basically moved the goalpost when it came to Clinton's emails. No sense whatsoever. This is that is the office's final position, and we will not comment on any other conclusions or hypotheticals about the president. We conducted an independent criminal investigation and reported the results to the attorney general as required by department regulations. The attorney general then concluded that it was appropriate to provide our report to Congress and to the American people. At one point in time, I requested that certain portions of the report be released. The attorney general preferred to make, that in, preferred to make the entire report public all at once. And we appreciate that the attorney general made the report largely public and I certainly do not question the Attorney General's good faith in that decision. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I am making that decision myself. No one has told me whether I can or should testify or speak further about this matter. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We chose those words carefully and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. In addition, access to our underlying work product is being decided in a process that does, that does not involve our office. So this was basically Bobby Boy saying, hey, yeah, you're on your own Congress, you're on your own Senate. Barr, Barr stood in front of the Senate and Congress, and uh, the Democrats were saying, hey, we want to get Mueller up here to con contradict what you're saying so we can get you lying under oath, all this other fun stuff. Mueller's saying, basically, no, calling a shot, and he's done. And the underlying materials are already being looked at, and apparently there was a report out with Nunez uh, there was a transcript that Mueller's team had, and it was redacted uh, to an extent to show that Flynn, it looked a lot more, because they'd removed portions of the transcript, it looked a lot more nefarious than it actually was between Flynn's lawyer and another lawyer. So there's already some fishing that's going down with the underlying documents to get Flynn charged up. And we are, uh, Flynn was the retired general and advisor, uh, original national security, security advisor to Trump, and he was basically lit on fire because he was basically dragged into FBI offices, no lawyers, and they got him for lying. Uh, Clinton, exact same situation in 2016, was allowed to have 11 or 6 or 10 lawyers with her and didn't respond or answer anything uh, when she was going and answering when Comey pulled her in for the email uh, situation or issue. More stuff coming up about Peter Strzok. Uh, he was actually leading the investigation against Trump while he was supposed to be reporting to Trump the, the issues that were going on with his campaign. So uh, Strzok knew that there were individuals in the Trump campaign that were either communicating or not communicating or having interactions with Russian bots, agents, whatever the case is. And it was his job to inform President Trump that this was occurring and to either fire or do see what he could do with whatever. And he was also... So while I was briefing Trump, he was also, also leading the investigation against Trump. So this is just it, a lot of smoke, a lot of fire. So I'll let Bob finish it off and then have my final thoughts on uh, his little press conference. What I've said here today and what is contained in our written work 
I do not believe it is appropriate for me to speak further about the investigation or to comment on the actions of the Justice Department or Congress. And it's for that reason I will not be taking questions today as well. Now, before I step away, I want to thank the attorneys, the FBI agents, the analysts, the professional staff who helped us conduct this investigation in a fair and independent manner. These individuals who spent nearly two years with the special counsel's office were of the highest integrity. And I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments that there were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Totally agree with that final statement, but the rest of the the rest of the investigation makes no damn sense. So, that Russia Russia what did interfere in the 2016 elections, that's the main storyline to grab away. But not if you not if you see any of the media stuff, or actually if you listen to this podcast, the big thing taken away is it was it's just a systematic thing to go after a president and discord and malcontent and all this other crazy stuff for nothing. A lot of bad actors in this whole this whole scenario, this whole play. Horrific stuff. At the end of the podcast, I'm going to do Crossfire Hurricane. So I'll do the, the normal stuff on the podcast, but at the very end, there'll be a 20-25 minute segment on Crossfire Hurricane. Highly recommend that you listen to that portion because it ties into this. Uh, makes a lot of sense uh, when it comes into that. So tons to get into when it comes to sports. A lot of good stuff happening, so we'll just get into it. NBA Finals, our Toronto Raptors jumping on that bandwagon. Took game one in Toronto from the Golden State Warriors. Uh, Kevin Durant's still out, probably out till game three, so that makes game two tonight very interesting. If Toronto can hold home serve, it's very interesting when it goes to game three. But uh, Golden State trying to take one back. Uh, in the NHL... The Boston Bruins murked the St. Louis Blues 7-2 in Game 3. Bruins have a 2-1 advantage. St. Louis Blues not really a home team, uh, so to speak. Uh, apparently in Game 2, one of their star defensemen, the Blues, knocked out one of the Bruins players. He was suspended. The uh, Bruins player didn't travel, so those kind of negated each other. But Bruins up 2-1. Uh, up with a 7-2 victory in Game 3. Game 4, going to head up in St. Louis. Like I said, the Blues not really a, a fantastic home team, so we'll see how that plays out for them. In boxing, a upset, probably the biggest upset in the heavyweight division in quite some time. Uh, Anthony Joshua gets knocked out in the 7th round by uh, Ruiz. Relatively unknown, but he had a pretty stellar record. Uh, looks, like, uh, looks like he loves the carbs just like I do. When it comes to that, but he's a big boy, and he uh, he was knocked out in the third, or knocked down in the third, and then he actually knocked down Joshua uh, retaliatory. I get to watch the highlight on that one. It was pretty impressive uh, to get knocked down and 
15 seconds later, put Joshua on the canvas, not once but twice in the, in the third round. It looked like Joshua was concussed uh, for the majority after that point, and it was just downhill from there. So Ruiz uh, obtains three titles from Joshua. They're going to rematch in the U.K. probably. Uh, that's probably what's going to go down. But that kind of hurts uh, the whole triangle trilogy between Fury, Wilder, and Joshua. So Joshua now has to reclaim his belts, tarnishes his legacy, so on and so forth, and it loses the big fights from him. Good news front, though, uh, Wilder and Fury are set to fight uh, in 2020. Month not really specified yet, but hey, that's going to be a fight that everybody's going to be looking forward to, and hopefully that we'll, we should be able to see. Uh, in MMA news, Gustafson loses to a relatively, not sure, Anthony Smith. Never heard of him. Gustafson, Gustafson was the uh, great white hope, so to speak, when it came to John Jones, him and Rumble Johnson. Uh, were the closest to tarnishing Jones's legacy, but they never got close. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride when it came to Gustafson. He lays down his gloves after a fourth-round submission defeat to Anthony Smith. Uh, in, the U in the UEFA final, um, I got to watch the entire game because it was such a big, uh, big matchup between Tottenham and Liverpool. Liverpool takes that one down 2-0. Uh, within 30 seconds, there was a handball in the penalty zone, uh, so... Salah punches it in in the second minute on a PK and then uh, 87th minute uh, Liverpool finishes him off it was pretty boring Tottenham just kept kicking the ball back defensively I can't really get into soccer that much uh, I, I don't get it but the the scheduling is fantastic the scheduling is awesome and we can learn a lot of things from the way they schedule where they go they basically play tournaments in the middle of the season their season is they get a champ and everything. So it's pretty interesting how they do that, how you can be relegated, how you can move up. You could literally start a beer league and be in the national title game uh, if your team is good enough. So it's pretty cool how, the, how they do that. But Liverpool 2-0 over Tottenham. Uh, Texas A&M baseball, uh, they dropped their, they were put in the West Virginia or the Morgantown Regional with West Virginia. They dropped their opener to Duke, 8-5. to five. Uh, We were down 8-1 in the ninth and finally turned the bats on, but to no avail. Uh, we ended up taking Fordham out, 11-2. We'd swept Fordham as our opening uh, season series, and now we will play West Virginia in, in an elimination game. And then if we win that one, we'd play Duke and have to beat them twice, the team that beat us in the opener. So hopefully our pitching, Duke pitching is not as good as ours. I don't think West Virginia's is as either. But our bats are not, obviously, uh, good enough to get there. Uh, no SEC team has been eliminated yet so far in the tournament. However, we have a couple that are uh, five, of the, five of the nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Five of the ten teams are in elimination games, and then five are in the regional championship games. So go SEC. NCAA baseball uh, in the Los Angeles regional. Uh, Baylor will play UCLA. In a, and UCLA is the number one seed. Uh, in elimination game, Loyola Marymount defeated UCLA 3-2, and Baylor crushed Omaha 24-2 in elimination game. Uh, Omaha eliminated. In the Corvallis, or Oregon State Regional, the one that's paired with UCLA, it's going to be Cincinnati and Creighton in the elimination game, and right now Michigan is waiting for them. And the number one seed already eliminated. Uh, Creighton took out uh, Oregon State. So the 16 is out. Oklahoma City, the 9 regional, is going to have Nebraska and UConn with Oklahoma State 
the nine or the number one seed in that one, awaiting the winner of the UConn-Nebraska game. Uh, the Lubbock, the eight regional, is going to have Texas Tech awaiting the winner of Dallas Baptist in Florida. Uh, in the Fayetteville, the number five, which is Arkansas. Arkansas is going to be awaiting the winner of TCU in Central Connecticut State. In Oxford, the Mississippi State Regional, the 12 Regional Mississippi State is awaiting the winner of Clemson and Jacksonville State. In LSU, the Baton Rouge Regional, it's LSU awaiting the winner of Arizona State and Southern Miss. In the Georgia Regional, Florida State is going to await the winner of Georgia and Florida Atlantic. Florida or Georgia was beaten by Florida State 12 to 3 in the winner's bracket. And FAU uh, beat Mercer 10 to 6 to get to that one. In the Nashville Regional, the number two seed Vanderbilt is awaiting the winner of Indiana State and Ohio State. Uh, in the Morgantown Regional, uh, Duke is awaiting the winner of AM and West Virginia. AM and West Virginia, the 1 2 in the elimination game. Duke has to be beaten twice, just like all the teams that are awaiting a winner have to be beaten. Uh, in the Greenville Regional, or East Carolina, which has been rain delayed. They are still waiting. I think they've only played one game, or they've only played the opening round. So Campbell beat NC State 5-4, to four, and Quinnipiac beat ECU 5-4 to four as well. So the elimination game is NC State, ECU, and then Quinnipiac and Campbell are on the winner's bracket of that one. Louisville, the number seven regional. Uh, Illinois State is awaiting the winner of Louisville and Indiana. Mississippi State, Starkville Regional. Oh, that was the old Miss Regional earlier. But Mississippi State is awaiting the winner of Central Michigan and Miami, Florida. Stanford, the 11 uh, seed regional. Fresno State is awaiting the winner of Sacramento State and Stanford. And then in Chapel Hill, the uh, NC North Carolina Regional. It's North Carolina awaiting the winner of Tennessee and Liberty. And then in the number three Georgia Tech regional, it's Auburn awaiting the winner of Georgia Tech and Coastal. So the only one seed that's been eliminated so far was Oregon State. Baseball standings, the Yankees two and a half over the Rays in the AL East. In the Central, Minnesota running away with it ten and a half over Cleveland. So it's June, but that's a, that's a hefty lead they've got there. Houston. Eight and a half over Texas. Texas at 29 and 27. They've won two, six, and four in their last 10 with a two-game win streak. In the National League, Philly's got a two-game lead over the Braves. In the Central, Milwaukee, a half-game lead over the Cubs. Uh, St. Louis and Pittsburgh still on that one, and so is Cincinnati, a five-and-a-half back. And then the Dodgers with a nine-game lead over the Rockies. And the Padres at nine-and-a-half back. Uh, so, yeah. Minnesota looks like they're running away with the Central so far. That is your Spore Rapport. Hope you enjoyed it. A lot of great a lot of great sports moments, a lot of great sports stuff going on. So we're, we're heading into the dog days of summer. Sad panda. But go Raptors, go Aggies, and sorry, Anthony Joshua. Babe, just hit the pedal. If things go wrong, it's just incidental. My bad, never got the memo. You never have fun while you're in the limo. Yeah, you wanna ride in six. You wanna dine in the six. And when I lean for the kiss, you said I'll probably send you some bits. And I'm like, hell no, nah, been waiting too long.
Hope you enjoy the format change. Mixing it up a little bit here because it's getting slightly repetitive. Back to the news, folks. Department of Justice Mueller office release joint statement clarifying Mueller's comments on the presser, which was our opening segment uh, on this old podcast. The Department of Justice and the special counsel office released a joint statement late on Wednesday to clarify remarks made earlier in the day at the press conference by former special counsel Robert Mueller. Carrie Kupek, spokeswoman for the Department of Justice, and Peter Carr, spokesman for the special counsel's office, released the following statement. The attorney general has previously stated the special counsel's repeatedly affirmed that he was not saying, but for the OLC's opinion, Office of Legal Counsel's opinion, he would have found the president's obstructed, uh, obstructed justice. The special counsel's report and his statement today made clear that the office concluded it would not reach a determination one way or the other about whether the president committed a crime. There is no conflict between these statements. Uh, yeah. Yay for him. So, like I said, Mueller's effort was very Comey-esque, very... Uh, very dumb but uh they are looking into all the source documentation for all the Mueller report and uh, Christopher Steele has decided that he's not going to cooperate with that uh quest for evidence and as has already been stated Nunez is there was an issue with the transcripts back and forth that they were different incorrect whatever the case was so meh on to bigger and better things. Uh, a fun topic, abortion. Apparently, so I, I waited a couple of weeks to uh, kind of address this issue because I've already done it uh, so far, made my statements known, but Alabama basically did a heartbeat bill or a an conception bill. Uh, Missouri did a heartbeat bill, eight weeks, uh, can't do an abortion. So no abortions in Alabama. Missouri had an eight-week bill. Uh, Louisiana has a Republican state Senate and there's a Democratic governor the democratic governor intends to sign their abortion bill illinois did one that was even further than the new york uh, abortion bill so this all started with new york and then appointing a fifth conservative semi-conservative justice and then this these are all challenges for roe versus wade which has been the back and forth on the uh, news media so the one that brought this home, the reason why I wanted to bring it up on the podcast is that I watched uh, a Frontline on this episode or on this issue. 1972 or 1976, Frontline did an expose on abortion clinics. They came back round turn because it made the media again and it just was perfectly situated. It was one of the three Frontline episodes that uh, I had stored when we watched it. So ended up watching it and it was kind of messed up. So th th of the people that they tried to talk to, Two women decided that they would, and wouldn't you know it, that the two women that decided to talk uh, at the abortion clinic found out that they were going to have twins, and they both decided to go on with the abortion. So, yay. Yay for them. They could all tell. Every woman that they talked to or every woman that agreed to have a conversation with the uh, reporter knew what they were doing. None of them said that it was, you know, not viable. All the, all the stuff that you hear, um, they, they knew that they were ending a life. Like, they all admitted to it. One just had this, the one of the uh, twin killers just had this deadpan look in their eye that they were just kind of very, very spacey. One was a couple that came in with her husband and they were making a decision not to, not to continue the pregnancy. And then one was a, uh, a girl that had had a one night stand or an ex-boyfriend, whatever the case was. Uh, she came in and uh, ended it, but it wasn't twins. So you can sympathize with the predicament, but you can also sympathize with the fact that some people believe that life begins at conception. So this is something that's never going to get really understood or done, but the more and more we begin to understand about 
biology and stop denying that kind of stuff and whatever, but it's just, I don't know, you got to educate people on what they're actually doing. And this is kind of the pendulum swinging back from the roaring 60s, 70s feminist type stuff of like, woo, like it's starting to become readily apparent that you are killing a human being after eight weeks, 12 weeks. Uh, there was a child that was born uh, earliest viability. I think it was 20, 22 weeks, 21 weeks, something, something in that realm. Kid was like 5.6 ounces and ended up surviving uh, going through. So via the the concept of viability is also changing. Uh, Danish socialism headed on to read. Danes make welfare a hot election issue as cracks show in the Nordic model. The Nordic wel welfare model, along the envy of many across the world-seeking egalitarian utopia, is cracking. Aging populations have led to politicians across the region chipping away at the generous cradle to grave welfare state for the years. Uh, four years. Uh, in Denmark, next, week next week's election could prove a turning point as frustrated voters say no more. Danes, like citizens of other Nordic nations, have largely been happy to shell out some of the highest taxes in the world, seeing them as a price worth paying for the universal health care, education, and elderly services. However, spending cuts by successive governments to reduce public deficit have led to more people paying out of their own pockets for what used to be free. We pay very high taxes in Denmark, and that's all right. But in return, I think we can demand a certain service, says pensioner Sonja Bliotzio. Her 92-year-old mother, who has dementia, was told by her local council in central Danish town of Assens that the cleaning of her small apartment in a nursing home would almost be halved to 10 times a year. Her mother, who lives off her state pension of 9,000 Danish crowns, or $1,350 per month, could not afford to pay the roughly 1,000 crowns a month for a private cleaning firm. In an illustration of the simmering public anger at such cuts, the council's move sparked an outcry on social media that prompted the prime minister to comment on the case as parliament and the decision to be reversed. The erosion of the welfare state has now become a defining issue on the June 5 general election uh, in a country where people hand over an average of 36% of their personal income to the state each month. Opinion polls indicate Prime Minister Lars Loke Rasmussen of the Liberal Party will lose power to Met Fredrickson of the center-left Social Democratic Party. Fredrickson's Social Democrats have won popular support by pledging to increase public spending, making businesses and the wealthy pay more towards welfare services uh, through higher taxes and partially roll back some of the recent, re recent pension reforms by allowing people who have worked 40 years to retire earlier. However, Rasmussen is accused his rival of being in the business of selling dreams. Either you'll leave voters massively disappointed or leave the enormous hole in the treasury, he told Fredrickson about our pension plans through a TV debate earlier this year. The Nordic model has been held up as the gold standard for welfare by many left-leaning politicians and activists globally. It featured the in the last U.S. presidential election campaign, for example, when Democratic candidate Bernadette Sanders pointed to Denmark as a model for his vision in an ideal American future. However, the tough choices fronting Denmark are reflected across Nordic nations faced with gener generation of baby boomers creeping into retirement. Voters feeling a rising sense of insecurity are increasingly pressuring politicians to safeguard their cherished welfare model. In Finland, the Social Democrats came out on top of an April election for the first time in 20 years after campaigning on tax hikes to meet the rising cost of welfare. In Sweden, one of the Europe's richest countries, support for the nationalist Sweden Democrats surged in last year's election on the back of fears of immigration and welfare. Nordic countries will top other high-spending uh, countries like the United States, Germany, and Japan for public spending per capita on social benefits targeted at the poor, elder, disabled, sick, or unemployed. Denmark itself spends a higher proportion of its health 
on public welfare than most European countries as 28% of its GDP, behind only France, Belgium, and Finland. But many Danes are distressed by the way things are going following two decades of economic reforms. Cuts to health care services, which include everything from free doctor appointments to cancer treatment, have led to the closure of a quarter of state hospitals in the past decade alone. A recent survey showed that more than half of Danes who don't trust the public health service to offer the right treatment. As a consequence, the proportion of the 5.7 million Danish population taking out private health insurance has jumped from 33% to 4% in 2003. Other cuts over the past 10 years have led to the closure of fifth of state schools, while spending per person above 65 years on services such as cares, care homes, cleaning, and rehabilitation after, Ill after illness have dropped by a quarter. Since the early 2000s, governments have also pushed through the unpopular measures to encourage people to work longer. They include gradually increasing the retirement age to 73, the highest in the world in decades to come from the 65, currently phasing out uh, early retirement benefits and cutting employment benefits in two years from four. That's kind of where we're where we're headed like that's where the states is going to go so uh spending contest while the policies have generated economic growth averaging 1.6 gdp growth since 2010 above the year average uh, sound public finances the election could mark a change of direction fredrickson says she will increase public spending by 0.8 percent per year over the next five years the equivalent of 37 billion danish crowns to buttress welfare the reason you can't argue to spend the money Needed to keep the current system level is that you want to set aside money for tax cuts, she sold Rasmussen. Fredrickson is, however, bound by a 2012 law not to allow public deficit of more than 0.5% of GDP, which is much stricter than the EU rules of setting the ceiling at 3%. Her message about increased spending is nonetheless going down nonetheless going down well with the public, along with tougher stance on immigration, which has also helped to win our voters from the anti-immigration Danish People's Party. Rasmussen has argued that acceptable level of welfare can be achieved in part by technological advances and letting more private players into areas such as health care and elderly care. But in a change of tact to the address voters' concerns, he announced a new plan to raise public spending by a percentage point and year, almost the same rate as Social Democrats. With government debt at 49% of GDP, way below the average of 111% of the OECD, and a budget close to being balanced, there is room to raise welfare spending, according to economists. However, uh, certain election promises, such as those by both candidates to come up with one to 2,000 new nurses, were unrealistic, with a record high employment of 97% of those able to work. The problem is that there's not enough people, she added, and the states is around 65, 70%, or 55%, whatever it is, with uh, those that can work or of the, working, of the population are allowed to work. He warned more public spending risk overheating the economy and hurting growth down the line if more people shifted from the private to public sector. And da, 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 da. Pensioner Blasio said that when her mother's services were curbed, she did her best to tidy up the apartment when she visited, but refused to do so the regular cleaning previously offered by the state. If I did that, the municipality would have achieved their goal to cut costs and make us fill the gap. So yay, socialism. Socialism, it's never going to work because people that work, you're going to beat them down until they don't want to work anymore. Then nobody works. And then that's, you get your dystopian future. So go Danes. Uh, toxic whiteness. Yes. Apparently, if you tell people that because of their race, they're privileged, people look at you worse or bad or whatever the case is. They tell you that you're dumb and stupid. So uh, there was a study that I heard about that uh, 
because you say that there's white masculinity or toxic masculinity or toxic whiteness or whatever the case is, it doesn't make you empathize for those that normal people empathize for anyways. It just makes you less empathetic for those that should have a perceived benefit. Uh, $90 million lawsuit, toxic whiteness purge at NYC, education department sees totalitarian threat. Uh, so, yay. So apparently a bunch of uh, white people were fired because they're white. The study goes with, uh, there, was, there was a study of conservatives and liberals. So if you are read, if you're given documentation or a study about, hey, toxic whiteness or, you know, white privilege or whatever the case is, conservatives are less likely to, and if not at all, uh, they won't perceive uh, failures of a white person or a black person or a red person or a blue person any different than they would normally perceive them. So, because they don't, they just don't buy into it. But if you show it to liberals, they're no more sympathetic to the black, red, and blue people's problems, but they're less sympathetic, if not even more than less sympathetic, to the white person's problems. So, like West Virginia poor people, uh, they would be, oh, you're white, so you should be successful. So, because you're white and you're not successful, obviously you're a worse person than other people. Uh, Dems call for an EPA investigation, even though it's on an Obama-era Obama policy. So there was a senator that decided that she wanted to call for an EPA investigation and come to find out it was actually Obama's policy and actions that had occurred that the investigation is going on to. And she was a sitting senator during Obama's era. Yay for her. Border security and New Mexico, New Mexico governor requests that the federal government bail her state out due to the fact that uh, the rising cost of illegal immigration, even though she pulled a stunt with moving the National Guard for New Mexico away from the border. So that's what you get. Uh, there was a judge that was fired for deciding that he would make a statement against the president. And I never really got the point that uh, judges were able to issue an, like just some random district judge from anywhere is able to issue an injunction to stop an executive level issue. So it's the same for Texas. Texas would do this stuff all the time for Obama, but now California is doing this all the time for uh, Trump. Trump says X, Y, and Z. It goes to a district court in California, and then all of a sudden there's an injunction, and it goes up, and they fight. And then also this happens in D.C. all the time, but all that stuff should go through the D.C. Court of Appeals. That that should be the court that's set up to, do, to handle that kind of stuff. So the judge in question was from Utah. He disparaged President Trump from the courtroom, and now he's paying the price. A Utah judge who openly disparaged President Donald Trump in the courtroom on social media is now facing consequences of his actions. Supreme Court of Utah has upheld a six-month suspension without pay for Taylorsville Justice Judge Michael Kwan. In a ruling last week, Utah Supreme Court determined Kwan undermined public confidence in the judiciary for improper use of judici judicial authority and his inappropriate political commentary. Kwan criticized Trump both on social media and on his courtroom before and after the 2016 election. Three days after the 2016 election, Quan wrote on Facebook, I think I'll go to the shelter to adopt a cat before the president-elect grabs them all. A reference to the Access Hollywood tape in which oh, <laughs> Trump was heard bragging about grabbing women's genitals without consent. Almost a month after Trump's inauguration, Quan said, welcome to the beginning of a fascist takeover and questioned whether the congressional Republican would be the American Reichstag, a time referring to the political body of Nazi Germany. Yay for you, you dumb. So... Quan uh, also disparaged Trump in 2017 when a defendant voiced hope that Trump would follow through on his promise to implement tax reform. 
uh, Quan defended his actions before the Utah Supreme Court, characterizing his comments as constitutionally protected speech. However, the court vehemently dis- disagreed. Fulfillment of judges' duties does not come without personal sacrifice of some opportunities and privileges available to the public at large, the court wrote, and as a person of the public and trust to decide whether issues of utmost fairness, independence, and impartiality, a judge must at times set aside power of his or her voice. Ultimately, the court dismissed each of the Quan's defenses and upheld the stiff reprimand because the judge has been the subject of prior discipline and the recipient of poor prior guidance. Judge Quan's behavior uh, denigrates his reputation as an impartial, independent, dignified, and courteous jurist who takes no advantage of the office in which he serves, the court said, and it diminishes the reputation of our entire judiciary, which is true. Just like Ginsburg should not be out running around talking about uh, anything going on, but she's a very outspoken member of the judiciary as well, but also on the Supreme Court. All right, I'm going to take a little break, a little bit of interlude. Back to the news after this. In our good news stories of the week, uh, we talked about C.C. Teffer or C.C. Teffier earlier. Uh, didn't understand the stats or finally got a hold of the stats. In 2016, when this individual identified as a man, they had they were ranked 200th or 290th uh, in the NCAA hurdles. The following year, they dropped to 390th, and then they took 2017 off, and then all of a sudden they won the women's championship for hurdles. So congratulations to him, her. So it's obvious the conclusion that you should draw is that men are so much better at being women than women are, which that was, and all with all due sarcasm. So, uh, but if, if this is where we're headed, like I've said many, many times before, there's really no need for women's sports anymore. If transgenders are going to be able to step down at any at will and drop into weightlifting, running, basketball, whatever the case is. So, yay for them. Uh, there's a backlog at Everest. Apparently, 11 hikers or 10 hikers have died in the last month, which uh, is a significant increase. Uh, there's a lot of people trying to climb to the summit and a lot of people are stuck on the mountain face and a lot of people are starting to die. So, uh, UFOs are, they've been spotted. Uh, apparently our radar systems are so good on aircraft that we can now track UFOs when they go and there's weird stuff going on there. So they're out there, uh, prosecuting ISIS. There are about 10,000 uh, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 individuals that were captured in Syria headed to Iraq. Uh, the majority of them have received the death penalty or gotten the death penalty uh, that have been prosecuted for ISIS. Now these 10,000 are going to be prosecuted by Iraq. Hopefully they all, if hopefully the majority, if not all of them, get the death penalty by hanging, beheading, execution, whatever the case is. Zero sympathy for their caliphate. Blueberries are good for you. Apparently your mortality is decreased by 15% if you have some blueberries. They can't make their mind up on beer. Um, beer is good for you. Beer is bad for you. I happen to think beer is good for you. And eggs. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Nobody knows. I like eggs, so I will continue to eat them. Cyclist beats up a fan for causing him to crash, and then he apologizes later, which I thought that was the worst part of it. Uh, good on him for beating up uh, one of the fans that ran him or, you know, interfered, hit him, whatever he did, and he apologized later. He should not have. It, it was probably... 
deservedly so beat up the fan. Uh, billionaire super yacht lost at sea, LOL. And then my last pontification for the day, or at least on the news segment, is that baseball really needs to change their rules. They need to keep people in the box. They probably need to go down to seven innings, to be honest, because they're losing a bunch of uh, they're losing a bunch of fans or losing a bunch of viewership. People aren't paying attention. I don't know why the screens were not extended. A four-year-old got hit in the stands by a baseball. I don't know why the screens have not been extended out to the foul, foul line already. Because you can't have that you can't have that uh, thought that it's dangerous to take your kids to a baseball game. I love baseball. I love watching it. So I, I enjoy it. It's a real fun game to watch live. But hockey's the best game to watch live. Basketball I find boring uh, to watch it live. But it is what it is. So I don't want one of my favorite sports to to go down. Football is pretty boring to watch live as well. Uh, but uh, of the sports, it's hockey first, baseball second, football third. Um, soccer's just insufferable to me. Uh, but basketball fourth. Basketball better than soccer. Soccer has its moments. So does basketball. But just more often than not, basketball ends up being like just a snooze fest the last two minutes if the game is out of hand. So that being said, that is going to end your news segment off into some crossfire hurricane talk. So... Uh, literally it's just a, what, 25 minutes set background, uh, tying around on the Mueller, uh, announcement that was done. So it walks back all the way to 2016 and talks about it. So have fun with the conspiracy theory. Enjoy the rest of your day. And, uh, I will check you later after the next interlude in Crossfire Hurricane spying scandal, this debacle, this atrocious disgrace of a scandal that happened to our president. You know, how many, any, a lot of cops, federal agents in the room, anyone have experience in law enforcement? Great. Yeah, a couple, raise your hand. If I'm wrong, call me out on this, but when I was a cop and then a secret service agent, if you have even an ounce of empathy for human beings, which most of you in this room have more than an ounce, you have a whole lot, You'll arrest a lot of bad people for a lot of really bad things. But one of the things that impacted me so deeply in my life, I'm not going to say the guy's name for obvious reasons, but let's call him John Doe. You know, we, we hit a door at about 6 o'clock in the morning to arrest this guy in a credit card fraud scheme. And it was ugly. I mean, it had, it had been hundreds of thousands of dollars. When you're a federal agent, you don't get to arrest people for like $5 petty crimes or anything like that. They'll throw you right out of there. It was a serious crime. We arrested the guy, and I remember after working on this case for six months, there was this sense of accomplishment tempered immediately by this awful feeling in my gut. It's 7 o'clock in the morning, you arrest him, and you don't anticipate the human side of it. Well, what happened? The guy's young kids ran out. That's their dad. He actually wasn't the worst guy in the world. He was actually a good father to his kids, and they're watching their father in handcuffs. And the wife is crying. Their life is over. Now, the guy was a bad guy. Don't get me wrong. But again, we're all human beings. And I've got to tell you, that I mean, almost scarred me for the rest of my time. I kept thinking to myself, I couldn't get that image out of my head. What bothers me about that and how that ties to this Spygate thing and why this whole thing has consumed the last year and a half of my life is that guy was an actual bad guy. Imagine if you find out you're the president of the United States all you did was win an election, and you find out the massive machinery of the federal government with the ability to slap bracelets on you in the form of handcuffs, take your life and your freedom, was turned against you. 
Folks, this happened. This is the biggest scandal of our generation. There's no close second. This is, makes Watergate look like romper room. Now, I only have about 20 minutes or so to get through this. This is usually about a 45-minute speech. I just gave it in California. But I promise you, there wasn't one person falling asleep the entire time. I'm going to walk you through what happened. It's all in the book, by the way, in great detail. And what we did in the book, if you choose to buy it or not, it's totally up to you. I'm happy to sign them. I won't leave until I sign every one of them. But read the footnotes. We deliberately did not use footnotes from right-leaning resources. I used CNN, the Washington Post, the New York Times, because anyone who tells you, oh, this didn't happen, just go to the footnotes and say, did you read this article? It happened, folks. The President of the United States had the intelligence community and the law enforcement community of the United States at the highest levels weaponized against him. Now, I like to break it down simply into how they did this. They had plan A, plan B, and plan C. And the joke of the whole thing, and when I say joke, I don't mean funny, I mean a tragic joke, is it wasn't known as plan A, plan B, and plan C. You know why? They thought plan A was just fine, so it was just the plan. When plan A failed, they had to move on to plan B and then plan C, which is the cleanup operation. Here's how this whole thing starts against Donald Trump. During the election, the Obama administration, which had done whatever it wants because the media is, the media is lost in this country, folks. Total, there's no media. Uh, forget it. That, 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 that's dead and buried. The media is done. They don't do journalism anymore. It's activism, nothing more, right? The Obama administration had grown comfortable with the idea of weaponizing government against their political enemies, and it happened over and over again. We had the IRS scandal, we had the AP phone record scandal, the Jim Rosen Fox News scandal, and I ask you this, what happened to any of the people involved? Anyone? Yeah, the answer is nothing. I, I, I have to do zeros like this now, because I used to do zeros like this, but I found out through the liberal media that somehow this means like a white power symbol now or something. I thought it meant okay or zero, but the media says, no, I'm serious, like these idiots in the media will tell you. So now I do zeros like that because I'm like afraid of some media idiot. Uh, these people are crazy. The Obama administration had gotten completely comfortable with the idea of abusing government for their political means. So what happens? They, they, this plan gets hatched, and I'm going to be candid with you. Where exactly it's hatched, nobody is yet sure of to this day. Matter of fact, if you're familiar with my commentary on Fox, I say often one of the great mysteries of this case is what's paragraph one? Paragraph one, what do I mean by that? When I was a federal agent, when you arrest someone, you have to do what's called an MR, a memorandum report. Paragraph one of that MR is always how the case started. I got a call from Jane Doe, bank fraud investigator, said this credit card number was stolen on April 14, 2015. I made a few calls, and the next thing you know, it's an 80-page report about this massive scheme. Paragraph one, though, always lays it out. Always. Do you know to this day we still have no idea what paragraph one, the why they started to spy on the Trump team was? Now, I get it. It was for political. I get that. But at some point, somebody, you have to understand, folks, how to put down on paper a semi-legitimate reason to start the most massive spying operation in a political campaign in U.S. history. Do you know nobody to this day will tell you what that is? I know what it is. So part, the first plan they do to hit the Trump team, folks, is they learn to manipulate these, these uh, about queries. In the, in the NSA database. The NSA has a database of a whole boatload of information, metadata, texts, that kind of stuff. How it works is too complicated in the time I have, 
But what you can do is you can query that NSA system and you can get a whole lot of information. But what happens about, this is plan A, this is how they're gonna get the information. I hope, if I'm not following, please stop me because this is important. The Obama administration figures out that through unmasking, in other words, wiretapping people, pretending they're targeting foreigners, and then querying information in this database that they can get all the political opposition research in the world that they need against the Trump team. It's beautiful. No one's gonna call them out. The media's on their side, right? But there's a good guy in this. There's a white hat. Somebody in the government sniffs this thing out. That's why I tell you, this wasn't plan A, this was the plan. They were gonna unmask people, wiretap people, and they were gonna query this NSA database and get all the information they needed about the Trump team. But somebody smells a, uh, smells a problem, and he's not having it. And he's the white hat, he's the good guy in this story. And it's Mike Rogers of the NSA. Mike Rogers of the NSA senses that there's something wrong about these about queries. In other words, who's tapping into the database here and making political queries? Now, folks, some of you, I, I don't know what your politics, I assume most of you are conservative, libertarian, or Republican, but that's fine either way. If you doubt any of what I'm telling you, just Google the FISA Intelligence Surveillance Court, their report on about queries. Because Mike Rogers goes to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and says, Houston, we got a problem. These queries are supposed to follow very specific guidelines about terrorism and, and, and all these metrics have to be, you can't just spy on Americans in the database. The FISA court looks into it, comes back with a report that was released in March of 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, that is devastating. If you haven't read it, you were read it, you were doing yourself a great disservice. Page 80 specifically is horrifying. Apparently, the NSA database was being queried by private contractors working with the FBI. These were not even government officials. People within the government were using private contractors to query information they had no, no judicial or legal authority whatsoever to look at. Rogers smells a rat. People panic in the government. Now, conveniently, what happens right after the election? I'm gonna put these pieces together and things will start to make sense. Donald Trump's elected, he's the president-elect, right? 10 days after the election, Rogers, who knows this has been going on the whole time, these unmaskings, the tapping of the, now does the Donald Trump tweet, they tap Trump Tower, then how does it make sense? He got the wording wrong, he didn't understand exactly how it worked, but the idea was not wrong. Donald Trump's not stupid, trust me. Guy got elected president, earned a billion dollars. I, I love, by the way, I love how these journalists criticize him. Journalists, the guy's making $25,000 a year writing clickbait pieces for BuzzFeed. Like, Donald Trump's an idiot. Hard pass, brother. Like, well, the, the guy just won the president. He runs for office the first time and he becomes the president. But we're, yeah, yeah, let me listen to Joey Bag of Donuts at BuzzFeed. You're right, you've got this. It's like, so, so about 10 days after the election, Donald Trump, Someone goes up to visit Donald Trump in Trump Tower. <laughs> Who visits him? Mike Rogers. But Rogers doesn't tell anyone. This is gonna trip you out totally. He doesn't tell anybody in the White House he's going up there. He visits Trump in Trump Tower, conveniently 10 days after the election, which from my experience in the Secret Service, is just enough time for them to go up to Trump Tower, WACA, the White House Communications Agency, for the President-elect, and set up a skiff. 
where they can talk privately, a sensitive compartmentalized information facility. In other words, a place where no one can listen in. Rogers gives it about 10 days, goes up there, has this big meeting with Donald Trump, and what happens the very next day? Donald Trump evacuates Trump Tower and goes to Bedminster, New Jersey to never return for another meeting. You think that was a dink? Like he did that by accident? Oh, let's just go up to Bedminster. I got nothing else to do. <laughs> now, again, this is all in the book in intricate detail. The greatest spy story ever told, except the fact that it actually happened, and it happened against you. Rogers has this meeting. Trump evacuates Trump Tower. The very next day, the Obama administration comes out and calls for somebody to be fired. Who's that somebody? Mike Rogers. And they start blaming it on things like drone strikes and other stuff. Like, really? Could you be any more obvious? The Obama administration knows Rogers is the good guy and fills Trump in on this entire debacle. He probably goes up there and says, brother, they're spying on you, like right now. He doesn't know, but now he does. So he leaves. All of a sudden, people start resigning from the federal government after that. You know who also resigns? Bob Hannigan. Now, who's Bob Hannigan? Bob Hannigan is the head of the uh, GCHQ, which is the British NSA. Well, why do you think the head of the British NSA would resign right after that Rogers meeting, right after Trump finds out about this massive spying operation. I'm going to tell you why right now. I'm not taking a selfie of you. I'm not taking a selfie of myself. I'm going to read to you a headline. This is from CNN. See it right there. I didn't Photoshop this. <laughs> April 14th, 2017. Remember who Bob Hannigan is. He's the head of the British NSA. British intelligence passed Trump Associates communications with Russians onto U.S. counterparts. You think I'm making this up? That's CNN. I didn't write it. They wrote that. So not only is the United States government in plan A weaponizing its intelligence community to listen in and computer search the Trump team to hurt them during the campaign for political oppo, they're working with the British and the Australians to pass information about the Trump team onto the Obama administration. Don't take it from me. Take it from CNN. They find out about this. Now, this thing breaks down about halfway through. They move on to plan B. Sorry, there's a lot more to plan A, but I, I, in the interest of time, I want to get through this because the cleanup operation is important. They move on to plan B. What's plan B? They realize, they're like, hey, folks, we better ease up on the unmasking and the tapping into the database. People are getting caught. This is probably not good. We're leaving a massive paper trail. And what if we lose, right? They move on to plan B. Plan B is crossfire hurricane. They say, well, listen, if we can't spy on them illegally, let's just spy on them legally. We have this beautiful thing called the FISA court, where we can walk into the FISA court, we can get a warrant on somebody, and when you get a warrant on somebody in the Trump team, they have this beautiful thing for the Obama administration called the two-hop rule. Well, it's for everyone, that's for Obama. Meaning, if I spy on you, and you're a member of the Trump team, I can hop to everybody you emailed, and then everybody they emailed. So basically, all I need to do is get a FISA warrant on the guy cleaning the floors in Trump Tower, and I've got everyone. Because if he emailed his boss and his boss emailed Don Jr., I get everybody. Beautiful, right? Not really. Because they were stupid. They were dumb. And they screwed up. 
The problem with the FISA court, unlike the unmaskings and the tapping into the database, is they had to produce actual evidence in front of a judge. There was a judge in a FISA court that needed evidence that the Trump team was working on behalf of a foreign power, but critically doing it in violation of a, at least one U.S. law. Folks, they had nothing. They had zero. Do you understand they, to this day, have absolutely zero, zero. Remember, don't do it one hand. It's a big mistake. Media people, you'll be, in a, you'll be a, a white power person after that. You always do it that way. They had zero evidence at all. Of, I'm, the funny thing, I'm only half kidding. That's how worried I am about the media. They're so crazy these days, right? They had nothing on collusion. Nothing. Zero. So what does the FBI and the, uh, the, the, the State Department and the DOJ do? They say, well, we don't really have any evidence. Let's just make it up. We've got this guy we worked with in the past, this, this guy, Christopher Steele. Now I'm going to do this. I'm not taking a selfie again. I'm not taking a picture of you. Don't you worry. I'm going to read to you another headline. You need to write this down because this one's going to blow your mind. Any of you read the dossier? You haven't, right? Not many people have. You should. If you haven't read the dossier, don't you worry. Because the dossier was already written back on April 17th of 2007. You're like, ah, what do you mean? I don't get it. Even 2017, right? No, 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 no. I didn't get that wrong. It's written right here in the Wall Street Journal on April 17th, 2007. Who's the author of this critical Wall Street Journal piece? Glenn Simpson and Mary Jacoby, his wife. Glenn Simpson, the purveyor of Fusion GPS. The article is called, How Lobbyists Help Ex-Soviets Woo Washington. Folks, I dare you to take a moment and read that piece. Put it next to the dossier. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's the same story. It was written 11 years ago. Glenn Simpson clearly had this information about Russian influence in Washington. He wrote 10 years ago. Read the names in the article. You know who appears in this article? Paul Manafort, all of these players. So what likely happened after plan A collapses is, they say, listen, let's go to the FISA court and do this legally, but we need evidence. We don't have evidence. Don't worry, Hillary Clinton's got a guy at Fusion GPS, says he's got a story to tell. Ladies and gentlemen, Glenn Simpson took his Wall Street Journal piece like it was a movie script, scratched out the names, put Donald Trump's name in there and said, look, do I got a story for you guys? It's all BS. The whole dossier is crap. Read the article. It's a movie script they recycled. It's a, it's a fairy tale. It's an Aesop's fable. It's made up. It's a scam. There is not a scintilla of evidence that it's true. Now, the big question on plan B till I move to the mop-up operation, plan C. Now they're in trouble. They're in a lot of trouble because they realize the dossier in and of itself is crap. And a lot of people at the Bureau know it. They need to buttress it with some stuff to make it a little, make it a little harder. Now's where the Michael Cohen story comes in, Trump's lawyer. In the dossier is a very specific allegation, right? That Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer, went over to Prague to set up this whole information exchange with the Russians, right? Well, what's the problem? Michael Cohen had never been to Prague. And his passport proved it. Where do you think they got that name, Michael Cohen? You're darn right. 
they probably were in that NSA database looking up a Michael Cohen and they got the wrong guy. I know there's only one Dan Bongino. I can tell you for sure there are a whole lot of Michael Cohens. Are you right? John Smith, John Brown, Cohen, these are common last names. They got the wrong Michael Cohen. So now you should be asking yourself, who the heck was Glenn Simpson dealing with in the government that gave him that name? And how did they get it? Plan B falls apart too. Plan B falls apart because something happens in November. Donald Trump wins. Nobody, I'm telling you, take it to the bank, cash this check and spend the money. Nobody saw that coming. No one. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was gonna get in. This was all gonna go away. They were gonna appoint their own attorney general, probably John Brennan, and this story is never ever to see the light of day, not in their lifetimes. But make no mistake, they know what they did. They all know what they did. Every single one of them. So they have to move on to plan C. Plan C, I call it clean up on aisle four. Now they're in trouble. They know they've got white hats in the government. I know one of them right now that's still in the FBI that's unquestionably cooperating with this investigation if you know how to read the tea leaves. And if you read the book, you'll figure out who it is. People start cooperating and talking and now people are panicking. Now does John Brennan's meltdown after the election make sense? He's the head of the intelligence community who, again, another thing for you to Google, but it's all in the book again. Who do you think John Brennan met with right before the election at the quote, director level as reported on by multiple media outlets? Bob Hannigan, the same guy from the British intelligence agency that quits right after Trump's election. He quits 10 days after and doesn't tell anybody about it. He says, oh, I'm leaving for family reasons. What do you mean? You related to Donald Trump? What do you mean family reasons? Family reasons, you're leaving because Donald Trump got elected. Who also quits? John Carlin. Who's John Carlin? He's the head of the Department of Justice National Security Division, the final division in the Department of Justice to put their John Hancock on the FISA warrant. He quits right after the election. Who did John Carlin work for? Now clean up on Al four is gonna to start to make sense. Who did John Carlin work for before he got there into the DOJ? He's Bob Mueller's chief of staff. Aww. He was Bob Mueller's chief. Now does Bob Mueller make sense? Clean up, aisle four, get the mops out. Everybody realizes they're all going down. They faked the FISA warrant. They have been involved in massive unmaskings. Susan Rice, Samantha Power. They have been uh, busted by the FISA court, tapping into the NSA database for about queries. They're, they left a paper trail 65 miles long. Bob Mueller has to clean this whole mess up. Bob Mueller is the only, do you notice how right away they had the name? So Bob Mueller's old chief of staff, he's the cleanup guy. Bob, make, listen, make no mistake. Bob Mueller's job right now is one thing and one thing only. Keep the heat on Donald Trump relentlessly for anything. Jaywalking, ripping off mattress tags, combing his hair the wrong way. Keep the attention on Trump no matter what because the minute the Bob Mueller thing is dissolved, all of this is gonna come out and it is, hell hath no fury. It, folks, they left a paper trail. They can't run from this. Mueller is brought in to get Trump impeached because they don't want any of this to see the light of day. Now, why Mueller? 
Mueller knows every player involved in this and has intimate connections with all of them. The guy who signs off on the BS FISA warrant, John Carlin, his old chief of staff. His chief bulldog in the case, Andy Weissman. Andrew Weissman worked with Bob Mueller. Andy Weissman was the chief prosecutor on the Enron case when Bob Mueller was the FBI director. Remember the Enron case that they screwed up royally? That's how they know each other. Andy Weissman hates Donald Trump. He's on emails congratulating Sally Yates for telling Donald Trump to go pound sand. Well, it gets better. Who else does Bob Mueller know? On Bob Mueller's Enron team, it all goes back to Enron. That same Enron team, headed by Andy Weissman, had another lead lawyer on the case. Who was it? Catherine Rumler. Who's Catherine Rumler? Obama's White House counsel, who was Obama's lawyer while all of this was going on. They know each other. Now you may say, fine, so Bob Mueller knows Obama's lawyer while this whole Spygate thing was going on. What's the big deal? You Google George Nader, Daily Beast, you can read an article today. Just popped today before we showed up. One of Bob Mueller's lead cooperators in this case, who's been selling out members of the Trump team from day one, is a guy named George Nader. Who's George Nader's lawyer? Catherine Rumler, Obama's White House counsel and Bob Mueller's buddy. The lawyer for the lead witness in this case feeding information to Mueller is Obama's White House counsel, otherwise known as the fixer. She fixed everything for them. She was involved in Benghazi, she was involved in the IRS, she was involved in the Secret Service scandal. Just Google her name, put in any one of those things, and who's the person giving the statement? Catherine Rumler. Who was also on that Enron task force? Lisa Monaco. Barack Obama's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor in the White House while all of this was going on. They all know each other. Finally, and I'll take some questions. Your final piece to the cleanup on aisle four operation. Who else does Bob Mueller know? Who now has judicial, excuse me, legislative, uh, uh, who has control over this, I should say, right now in the Department of Justice, right? Rod Rosenstein, right? Because Sessions had recused himself, now Whitaker's in there, uh, which was a good appointment, right? A case happens a little while ago, the 10X case. It's around 2015 or so. It happens in Maryland. I'm familiar with it because I worked in Maryland as a Secret Service agent in Baltimore. I wasn't involved in that case at all, but I know the office well. The 10X case goes down in Maryland. The 10X case, a cooperator for the United States government paid $50,000 by the FBI. Comes to the FBI with some troubling information that the Russians are helping the Iranians build their nuclear program and that there's a company helping Russians get a hold of our uranium. It's called the 10X case. It was the precursor to something you may have heard about, the Uranium One operation. The same players are involved. The case gets, uh, gets thrown out on a, on, a, on a BS press release on a Friday night so nobody will pay attention. Everybody's gag ordered and it all goes away. That the Obama administration, an FBI paid informant, admitted that we were given the Russians uranium while they were building the Iranian nuclear program and chanting death to America. Who was the lead prosecutor on that 10X case, the precursor to Uranium One? Rod Rosenstein. And who's the FBI director? Bob Mueller. Folks, they all know each other. 
This is the biggest scam in American history. Folks, I beg of you, I really do. You cannot let your legislative people, your congressmen or anyone off the hook, whatever connections you have, you need to keep the heat on this because if these people don't go down the right way, unlike the Obama administration tried to do it to us, this will happen again. I'm telling you what they did was such a grotesque, horrendous abuse of power. It disgusts me to this day, and I will never, ever forget that story about that guy we arrested and his crying kid that morning who wasn't going to see his dad for another year. That's a horrible thing to have to do to someone, and it's a grotesque thing to do to someone to unleash the power of the federal government when they did nothing wrong. And Donald Trump did nothing wrong. And if you read the book, and by the way, one last thing before I get to the questions. You, it's not a narrative. You don't have to read it straight through. It's written like a police file. I think that's why it's been selling like crazy. You can read the last chapter first. You can go right. It's written like a police file because the names, like I said, this is an hour-long speech I compressed into 20-plus minutes. The names never stop coming up again, ever. Oleg Deripaska, connected to Vladimir Putin, who's connected to Adam Waldman, a lobbyist who's emailing and texting Mark Warner, a Democrat on the Senate committee. Who's Waldman working for, too? Christopher Steele, the guy working for Hillary. They're connected to the Russians, the people that show up at the Trump Tower meeting. Veselnitskaya with Don Jr. and Renat Akhmetshin. Veselnitskaya works for Fusion GPS on a separate case. And Akhmetshin, the other guy, the Russian intel guy that shows up at the Trump Tower meeting, you know who his lawyer is? Edward Lieberman. You know who Lieberman's wife is? Evelyn Lieberman, Bill Clinton's old chief of staff. Read the book, folks. It's all laid out. Well, if you've listened this far, Don Biagino, that, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy that that's all said. Uh, the outro today is something that uh, was very moving when I saw it. It's a, some kid named Cody, 22-year-old autistic guy, and he's got some pipes, and this is what he does. Autistic people are fantastic. Um, they do great and wonderful things and some I, I, I want to say that all autistic people have a skill set you just got to find it and they're they're exceptional when it comes to that certain thing they do that certain thing better than almost anybody else and that but they they just I mean it was awesome it was it's just fantastic to hear it's great to hear hope you enjoy it have a great weekend in my life and time I've sung a lot of songs and I've made some bad runs I've acted in my life in stages 10,000 people watching yeah we're alone now and I'm singing this song my life.
job I've ever had. You just want to give your kids the moon, the stars, and the rainbows. And tonight, I'm going to give you something special.